This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Changing gamer expectations. My dramaturg hat. Christmas food. And the Iranian Revolution. The rattle of dice, the shuffle of rule books, the click and whir of PDFs being pulled up on tablets and phones, the crunch of Doritos. Yes, it's a veritable festoonery of options here in the gaming hut. And in the gaming hut, as you know, in the past, it was just a, um, uh, a stereo that was left over from upstairs and maybe some shag carpeting and a, a, a <laughs> poster of the map of Middle Earth. But now the gaming hut is a veritable multimedia palace with a million screens and a thousand possibilities. Robin, how how do we come to grips with our vast panoply of gaming possibilities now in the present? Well, I had an exciting time capsule open up for me in the form of playtest feedback for the new version of Feng Shui. And what we did as the first step of that was to ask a whole bunch of people, we got up to 30 groups, I think, to play it as if it were a new game and respond to it as if it were new. And although I'm also interested in getting feedback from people who uh, played it for a long time and felt that it broke down over time, I also think I know how to address that point mm-hmm. as well. But it was very interesting to, to contrast what people said in this round of playtest feedback here in the dimming days of 2013 versus the initial response that we got in the mid-90s, as seen by the EMS, the Expectations Management Sidebar, (laughs) that appears in the first book. And, of course, an EMS is always an important part of the designer's toolkit because you will get uh, a lot of response from people with varying degrees of taste and interest, and it helps to sort of shape their expectations to explain why you're doing things, why things that might seem not to work are actually intended, and here's how to make them work, or here's what to expect as you're playing this game. So Feng Shui's original EMS was all about, well, this is still a good role-playing game. In fact, a very good role-playing game, even though it's all about fighting. <laughs> and the uh, it doesn't focus as much on characterization as you think, but in fact, it really does. And the feedback we got this time was nothing like that, because, of course, we've been through so many iterations of games that got back to the fun of opening a can of whoop-ass that that is no longer controversial and it's sort of hard to without the evidence of that to think back that there were a whole bunch of people that we kind of had to convince that it was okay to still have a game that was fun to play that was mostly about uh, fighting with uh, pretty simple transitions between the different fight scenes and this i guess was a period where you had D&D was still off in its corner it was before the D20 revolution sort of brought it back for everybody and you're either interested in D&D or you were interested in other games. And if you were interested in other role-playing games, you kind of made that uh, contrast between what you were doing and what it was doing. So at that time, I think the self-perception was anyway, that other games had much deeper characterization if you were off exploring 
Glorantha or involved in some sort of machination with your vampire clan or so forth. And so that was an expectation that we had to address that we don't have to address now. Um, that was also the period of the build system when the build system was in its heyday. And in fact, um, I had to be convinced by Jose Garcia, who developed the original Feng Shui, to put in templates at all. I thought that that would be too controversial to guide people's character building and character optimization at all. And so consequently, what you do get is it's a sort of the templates or archetypes in the first book are sort of a starting point. But then you go on to do a bunch of figuring and working around uh, with uh, arithmetic and optimization. And there are four stats, each of which has up to four substats. And we put in all sorts of breakpoints so that you couldn't uh, bust the system by having an attribute that, that you then combined with your skill level to get you too high and final AV result. Now, as you might expect, what do you think the new playtesters playtesting this in 2013 came back and said? They probably came back and said, we want uh, more evocative fighting and we want stronger classes. Uh, yes, indeed. In fact, or not so much even stronger classes so much as plug-and-play classes. Right. And apocalypse world being specifically cited as we just want something we can grab point to and play yeah and if we had done that in the mid 90s that would have been you know too far out of people's frameworks of, you, you you're not letting us optimize our characters you're these are just pregens with a fancy name mm -hmm. whereas now there's something that are uh, quite in demand and by having that change of expectation that actually frees me up to much more easily balance the different archetypes and make sure that they all work and are fun. And the question of optimization, if you sort of leave that for later, and even uh, experience is going to be more about, you know, picking the different cool things that flesh out your character more rather than rewarding the people who are willing to spend more time doing homework and looking for exploits. Right. So that's just, you know, one or two little flash examples of how much gamer expectation have, have changed over the history of role-playing or two particular points in the history of role-playing. But there are certainly more. And as a designer, also, I'm sure that you've encountered situations where the theory that gamers have about what makes a game good is something that you either work with or have to take into account or have to write your own EMS sidebar, or I guess just EMS, I'd say. Uh, <laughs> like my ATM machine. <laughs> ATM machine yeah. there. Um, I'm sure you've had examples where you also had to help sort of shape people's expectations and show them why the new thing that you're doing can also be a good game, even though it departs from the current prevailing assumptions of what a good game is. Well, I mean, when I'm doing an EMS or the version of it that I put into whatever I'm writing, it's not usually specifically about a, um, this is why this is departing from what you're expecting from this game. My goal, whenever I produce a game, whether it's a supplement like Day After Ragnarok, or it's a full-on game like Knights Black Agents, or even if it's just a, a little uh, source book, is to capture the expectations well enough in the, in, in, the, in the back cover text, in the marketing, in the name, in the flavor of the book, so that Anyone who picks the game up has a pretty good shot of expecting what they're going to get when they open the the covers, and then what they get ideally surprises them with how good it is, as opposed to 
What? This was Bookhounds of London, and it's about a bunch of guys going around buying books? I demand my money back. <laughs> right? Um, and, and I think that one of the interesting things about it is partially because, obviously, I've designed probably an order of magnitude fewer games than you have. So in terms of straight game design, my expectations career has usually been following after the um, whoever the, the, the last designer was. So if I'm doing... Uh, you know, Day After Ragnarok, that was in the wake of Savage Worlds. And then when I did uh, Knights Black Agents, it was in the wake of everything that you'd done for Gumshoe and Esoterrorists. And so I'll, I don't do a lot as much when I'm trying to run out in front of where the design community is and, and, and lead them in some direction that they may or may not want to go. I'm doing a lot more trying to sort of stay, you know, the second tiger back on the trail, right? So that it's still, you know, impressive, but I don't have to do all the nasty dealing with, uh, uh, you know, um, people with guns up front. So, so your expectations management is you already met the first tiger. Yeah. I am the second tiger. I am also going to try to bite you. Exactly. And I will bite you with a degree of ferocity and verve that you perhaps didn't even expect from a tiger. And that's sort of my, <laughs> my, my selling point. And I think one of the interesting things that you can look at, and I'm wondering if uh, Paul and uh, Mike, when they're doing 7th edition Call of Cthulhu, are running into this because a game that has been constantly supported, I mean, supported to one degree or another, certainly, but constantly supported in pretty much the same mechanical format that it was in 1981 is a game that builds its expectations into its user base in a way that Dungeons and Dragons, for example, doesn't with, you know, a radical change to rule systems every, you know, two generations of gamer. And I think that I'm wondering if, the expectations game is different for something like uh, Feng Shui, where you released it probably three design generations ago, and you're now trying to set it as either, you know, current model or cutting edge for the future. Is that, do you think that's a different, I mean, that, that seems like that would innately be a different task than something where you're coming to a game that has been continuously supported in one format and one basic rule structure, and you say, okay, 300,000 owners of the game or half a million owners and however many active players and however many other, you know, conventures on message boards, we are going to introduce a radical change. And again, they're doing it again. Well, a lot of the changes that they're doing are in response to concerns that have been brought up in other games and things like Gumshoe and, and uh, things like uh, fate points in, in fate or, or Benny's in savage worlds. They're trying to introduce a lot of those elements into call of Cthulhu. And I think it's, I mean, they're dealing with people whose expectations were preset in 1981, even if they themselves weren't alive in 1981. Do you think that that's got a different dynamic to it? Yeah, I'm, I'm blessed in, in about three different ways, and let's see if I can remember all three of them by the time I finish talking. Um, one of them is that unlike uh, if, uh, you know, I were tasked with the job of revising something that had been in continuous uh, use the way that Call of Cthulhu has, or can, uh, is the tyranny of small differences that introducing a small change uh, can actually be very challenging for people because it becomes hard to remember which one is the new one, which one is the old one, um, and also people's expectations of how the game works, as you suggest, may have been cemented a long time ago. And you can sort of tell the age of people who are responding to you and commenting online about whatever it is that you're... Uh, designing or talking about that you're going to release in terms of what their expectations are. So there's still certainly people who are very interested in the sort of optimization that we 
assumed was sort of the baseline expectation when we first did feng shui, but those people are uh, less numerous. Now, I would argue that they're we're always less numerous than they seem to be because optimization is something that's easy to talk about online. And so by being something that you can talk about, it sort of over-represents the extent to which the entire player base is interested in, in that. Another advantage that I have is that people fondly recall feng shui as being more innovative than it actually was <laughs> because it was kind of a traditional game with an untraditional front end bolded onto it and a lot of untraditional GM advice, uh, GM advice, which is now largely unremarkable because uh, people adopted it and imported it to other games. And it became along with the work of so many other designers, sort of part of the default assumption. So that's always a great place to be in where you are now able to work within the expectations that you helped along with many others to change. Not that many others, five or six others. <laughs> right. Um, but, uh, and also because it has gone through, you know, it's been the same game and been available the whole time, but not been revised as many times as most other games will have been. People are hungrier for the changes and hungrier for the updates. And I think there will be less resistance. Now, an asterisk on that is that there are people who remember what their critique was at the time, and that critique is still alive for them in their memory, even though it's not a critique that they would make of a current game released today. So, uh, for example, you know, there will still need to be expectations management around the idea that we're going to present a whole bunch of really fun, playable characters for you, uh, more than most other games in actual practice, but we're not going to present a build system that allows you to make your own templates because we're pretty confident we thought of all of the action movie characters that you could possibly want to play. And the temptation, if we give you templates, is either that system will be flawed and result in broken characters because there's really no substitute for kind of eyeballing things and then playtesting them as much as you can, that there's no system that you can sort of back form that would result in the things that you eyeballed to, to begin with. Right. But I mean, also the, the existence of Crocs in, you know, even classic really good point build systems like GURPS and Hero demonstrate that there's nothing that can't be uh, crocked with uh, the gamer mass mind. It, that, that's certainly true. And a reverse engineered build system, even more so than those build systems, is going to be really susceptible to that. Mm -hmm. the, the other big concern is just that people will use the build system to create characters who don't belong in the world of Feng Shui, uh, sometimes because they want to sort of backdoor the rule set into a generic rule set in which they can play other things, but I'm legally, contractually prevented from doing that and creatively uninterested in doing mm -hmm. that. I only want to do stuff that serves uh, Feng Shui. So people may still remember that they kind of wanted a template system, whereas if they got Feng Shui now, or sorry, they, they may still remember that they wanted a build system, but if they got Feng Shui now, um, having seen Apocalypse World, and they would just, oh yeah, okay, plug and play characters, great, let's go. And it would uh, that critique would not then arise. Um, and I don't want to imply, although I think in general, the designer's work has become easier over the years as people, particularly the indie design community, have really sort of exploded a breadth of different ideas and approaches that have really eroded the idea that there is one true way to game or even one favorite game that any one person can have, that a sort of a bespoke game that tries to evoke a particular experience can be great without being better than another game, that there isn't 
one set of objective aesthetics that we uh, have in place and are just sort of uh, working toward, there's an inevitable conflation that I think people make between their tastes and whether something is good or bad. And we in the nerd hive mind do have a tendency to over theorize things at times. But in general, I would argue that the movement has been toward seeing that there's all sorts of different ways to game and that, you know, to, to quote an amazing new insight that no one had come to before, variety is the spice of life. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right now and, and write that down so that, um, <laughs> yes, so you, that you I don't forget it. it. For the first time, yes. podcast listeners. Um, now, I don't want to argue, though, that it's only gotten easier because uh, because of that desire to theorize. There are new theories that are developed as to, you know, what makes a game good or bad. And there are certain people who still want to strongly hold to certain ideas that you can never do X or Y. Uh, for example, there are a lot of people now, and this is a pretty new thing that, I, you know, didn't run into until the last few years, who become very upset if the game recommends that the GM practice any form of deception. That if the game is not entirely transparent to the players at all time, that it is badly designed. And I would certainly argue, uh, pish, pish and pasha, I would say, in my best argumentative voice, because uh, theatricality and storytelling often depends on surprise and the concealment of information. And just because sometimes that you as a player are in the dark about what's going on, as long as the payoff for that, as long as the reveal is fun and, and surprising, the way that surprise works in any other non-collaborative media, I uh, don't have any problem at all with non-transparent or even uh, deceptive things at the margins. And it might be interesting to, I mean, there's certainly a point where deception turns against you when you're doing something that's so non-apparent to the players that you don't stop to get their buy-in first. Mm -hmm. But once you've established trust, I, for example, think that that relatively new expectation is one that uh, requires serious management, I would say. Well, I think that, I mean, with a lot of these expectations, they're, uh, and, and I'm going to turn your um, uh, variety and uh, the spice of life back around, because I just thought of something uh, on the lines of, and I'm, work I'm still working it out, I'm not super happy with it, but something like moderation in all things, maybe? Uh, the notion oh, that's that, crazy. The notion that you can you can take a lot of different elements of of a game design and any one of them used in isolation or uh, tautologically to excess endangers the game, just like misdirection can, just like uh, you know build systems can or cannot, just like ar strong archetypes or classes can or cannot. And that one might say that it is a um, uh, that not everyone likes garlic soup, and so therefore. While most soups are improved with some garlic, there are people in this world, sad fallen people, who do not want a garlic soup, and indeed there are even people in the world who prefer a soup with no garlic in it at all. And so therefore, I think that in the same way that you were talking about that there is no one best game, uh, as is this sort of dominant uh, meme now, which of course, uh, again, Modulo Call of Cthulhu, sure, why not? But the notion that we are no longer all of us experimenting to find the one true form all games must take and are beginning to approach games as you do other, not even other artistic endeavors, because you can still get people to say that there's one best movie or one best play or, or whatever, but you're looking at it more as uh, different types of collaborative endeavors. So it's like, it's much harder to get everyone to agree that there's one best food or even one best restaurant because you can say, well, 
Most days, sure, I'm happy to go to Bouchon, but I'm really in the mood for Mexican food. And that does not seem to set up any kind of barrier in the way that it used to back in the day when people would say, sure, I like Call of Cthulhu best, but I'm really in the mood to play some sort of um, uh, slap-happy martial arts game. And and so that that would be the notion that you're feeding different appetites at different times is part of both sort of expectation, I don't want to say uh, improvement, but let's say expectation expansion out there in the marketplace. And then also I think it's an important thing to keep in mind as a designer that your cuisine offering should be acceptable to many palates, but you shouldn't shy away from the occasional strong flavor if that's what you're, um, uh, you're trying to, to, to market in that specific case. And you can see that feeding back into itself in the way games are designed now and into the initial issue we were talking about, which is that when there was an assumption that you would find the one true game, the assumption was that you would stick with it. That would mm -hmm. be the thing that you invested everything in and played for years, and you would be a GURPS guy or a Champions guy or a Pendragon guy or, or whatever. And now you are someone, a guy or gal, who plays uh, one game uh, one night, another game the next week, and then you have a short session of this, and then you switch the other thing. And so necessarily, games have to be designed and are designed to facilitate that. So the idea that now you want a more plug-and-play version of Feng Shui reflects the fact that people assume they're not going to play it for quite as long, and that it's not as worth it to master it enough up front to have a big, long blue booking session where you do all the arithmetic to get at the numbers that I originally hoped you'd wind up at anyway. Mm -hmm. I, th I think that part of it is, is it, and I certainly don't want to say that all gamers everywhere have become more Catholic in their tastes and more uh, experimental and trying more different games, because that's demonstrably not the case. But I think that the new game market place, the people who are interested in buying what you and I are selling, is made up of people who are more like that, simply because over the last 50 years, people who are only interested in one game tended to find that game and then stick to it. And so a guy who's been playing Call of Cthulhu literally since 1981 with no breaks and is still happy really isn't in the market for another kind of game necessarily because he has found his one true way. Same with guys who are still playing, you know, first edition AD&D, of which there are probably, you know, more people in that pile than there are in all other gaming piles in terms of tabletop, you know, put together. And it's the person who is the Galapagos Island of, or, or for whom Call of Cthulhu is a Galapagos Island of taste, is the one that the designers of the new edition are going to have the hardest expectations time with, because it will be more difficult to introduce ideas that have developed since Call of Cthulhu to those folks, because they're uh, largely happy with the thing that they know and makes them comfortable. Yeah, and also there are you know questions of whether or not the design decisions are individually wise or unwise, but that's a different podcast that I think we already did. Right. And uh, m moderation uh, being the, the heart of all things, or as I know it from Greek philosophy, don't do crazy pants things, uh, suggests that our podcast segment should be of moderate length. And so although I suspect we have more to say, we should start saying it about something else. And that something else is a fine and scholarly hat that Ken is wearing, and it has a tragedy mask on one side and a comedy mask on the other, although I suspect the 
tragedy side is somewhat weighted here. Ken, you have adopted a comparatively new hat, or perhaps just a hat unknown to our listeners, which is that of a dramaturg. Uh, now, I, as a, a theater studies major from the antediluvian area, know what that means, but I'm sure that our podcast listeners are on tenterhooks waiting for your definition of the term. Uh, you are a dramaturg. What does that mean? Um, as the dramaturg in America, and one of the many great things about being a dramaturg in America is that you don't have to call it a dramaturge. That's for British dramaturgs. <laughs> uh, we can use the awesome German pronunciation and spell it to dramaturg, and it's it's just, even more delightfully pretentious. It's hugely more fun, and as you point out, pretentious. A uh, dramaturg in America generally, and this still varies theater troupe to theater troupe, and it probably varies project to project, but they are the person who is there to represent the author. And in a play that is adapted from a, a previous work or a play that has got some connection to another uh, body of work, like if someone was writing, say, um, a sequel to King Lear, right? They were writing a play called Goneril or, or whatever, um, then... You would be the, the dramaturg's job would be to make sure that King Lear is still present in the work that Shakespeare is still being talked about. In a lot of senses, if you're doing a normal King Lear, they might have a dramaturg who's there to push back against the director and say, "Well, this is what Shakespeare meant by all this stuff. This is what's uh, been done by you know best practices since then. Are you sure you really want to have everyone on scooters? I think that might." harm the drama. Right. And the relationship isn't just adversarial, though. It is as the sort of the research master, mm -hmm. you are there as a resource for the director. So right. if you hit a line in uh, King Lear and you don't, the actor doesn't know what the reference means and therefore is just delivering it as generic Shakespearean rhythm, you can then uh, either with your uh, brilliant knowledge of all things Shakespearean or by hitting the books, find out exactly what that reference means and then allow the director and the actor to collaboratively work together with that bit of information as the key that unlocks the meaning of what that line is. Right. And that's the other thing that I'm bringing to uh, this role is that I am the research guy. So when uh, the playwright uh, put a scene involving microfilm into the play, I came back and said, unless this scene is taking place in one room at Harvard, uh, it's impossible. The microfilm doesn't exist now. And so, uh, so he had to now take we're it out. talking about microfilm, uh, we've been remiss in not mentioning uh, what it is you are dramaturging and for who. Yes, I am. Uh, I've been for some years now the artistic associate or an artistic associate. They have many at uh, the Wild Claw Theater, which is Chicago's uh, premier theater of horror. Uh, they do horror dramas. They came to my attention with a uh, adaptation of The Dreams in the Witch House, which uh, they invited me as area Lovecraftian to be present at and give a little Lovecraft talk at the beginning and uh, hand out copies of Weird Tales. And so it was a great fun time for everybody. And over the years, I have come to uh, be buddies with them and they have uh, invited me to be an artistic associate. And I remember um, I was at a meeting of Cagwick, the Chicago area game writers colloquium. And by meeting, I mean drunken hangout. Um, and I uh, got the phone call. And so I excused myself, went out, took the call, came back in. And I said, um, uh, well, I'm an artistic associate at Wildclaw Theater now. And Nathan Pauletta says, so how much is that going to cost you? And I said, well, so far, it's cost me a quarter to take this phone call. And <laughs> so far, I'm, uh, I, I don't regret it, but I suspect that uh, even though a dramaturg uh, is a paid position in this case, it is perhaps 
Um, uh, still something that one does out of love for the legitimate stage, or in my case, love for Lovecraft, because the play that I'm currently dramaturging is The Shadow Over Innsmouth, a uh, stage adaptation of Lovecraft's classic uh, horror novella, uh, adap- adapted by uh, Chicago playwright Scott Barsotti, who also wrote uh, The Revenants, which is probably the best zombie love story ever uh, put on the stage. He adapted Clive Barker's uh, Kill Me. He's uh, done a, a number of other great plays uh, in his career, and he and is... is he writing these specifically for Wildclaw? He is writing them. Uh, Wildclaw is debuting them. He also writes for other uh, theaters as well. So he is a, a Wildclaw member, but he is... Uh, we do not have uh, quite the resources to make him our permanent on-staff and exclusive playwright, but he, he loves us best, and he is a Wildclaw company member. So he um, he wrote this adaptation of Shadow of Rinsmith, and uh, they, having you know seen... They, they, they asked me to write the liner notes for the program notes for Carmilla when they did an adaptation of Carmilla that was really, really good. Um, and it was written by um, Ali Amade, who's the artistic director at uh, Wildclaw. And so apparently those program notes impressed them with their degree of research that could be packed into 750 words. And so they invited me to be the dramaturg for Innsmouth. And I have been having great fun with it because it means that I get to sort of be the voice of Lovecraft. And when there are elements of the play that are, and I don't want to say they're counter Lovecraftian, but they emphasize things that I think Lovecraftian might have meant as a light motif as opposed to a motif. I can you know, tug on on Scott's cape and say, "Is this exactly where we want to go?" And what about this scene and things like that? Are you at liberty to provide an example? I, I, I think that one of the things that is I think obvious to people who read the story now is that the reaction to someone. Uh, submitting to the Deep Ones is a different reaction to us than it was to H.P. Lovecraft and probably than it was to other people in 1936. And so when you write, uh, adi- when you adapt Shadow of Rinsmith now, as, for example, was done by uh, Tony Gildark in the film Cthulhu, the degree to which the person finding acceptance is a positive event is, it, it was in Lovecraft that was very much a secondary aspect of the, of the story and it's a part of the horror and I think that one of my jobs as dramaturg is to make sure that while you may still feel more sympathy for the protagonist in this case than you did in, uh, than people in 1936 did or than Lovecraft did, that it is still a horrified sympathy or a horrific sympathy or a sympathy that causes you to question something as opposed to a simple triumphal story of, oh, look at that. Um, uh, Olmsted has found his home and everything is happy. And in this particular, uh, version, Olmsted is a woman, which made the story very interesting and unlovecraftian in a big way to start with. But that's the sort of, you know, creative change that I think is, it, it, it's, um, uh, it's useful if you want to try and goose the story for an audience of jaded Lovecraftians. And certainly Scott is more than capable of writing very interesting female characters, which puts him one up on Lovecraft. So to what extent is Wild Claw's audience an audience of seasoned horror aficionados, and to what extent are they part of the audience for the general, very fertile, legendary Chicago theater scene? According to my buddies at Wildclaw, it tends to be about half and half, that there's about half of the people are horror fans, they're um, devotees of horror, they're the type of people that come out to Death Scribe, which is the big uh, series of radio uh, plays that they put on, uh, usually in December. Uh, we, I actually just got back from it yesterday. Um, and it's uh, sort of live horror, 
uh, radio theater, and so it's that kind of audience, sort of your Night Vale crowd. And then the other half are just, like you say, people who are Chicago theater uh, fans and want to see theater. And so they are fans of theater in exactly the same way that you or I are fans of movies. And so if a movie isn't horror, it doesn't mean that you and I don't go see it. It means we go see it with different expectations. And so the um, uh, the the interesting job that Wildclaw has to do is present this material in such a way that it can appeal both to a theater audience and to a horror audience. And I think that's the interesting creative challenge, because if the only people you're playing to are Fangoria heads, you can go nuts and spray blood everywhere and have a great time, and everyone's having, you, you know... You can drop arcane references exactly. sort of in-jokes in if you're tempted to do that. And if the only people you're playing to are theater people, then you tend to work yourself into that position that people do when they uh, deracinate Macbeth, or they say... Uh, honest to God, theater scholars in quotes say Seneca's plays are not meant to be performed because they are too grotesque. And those are poor scholars. Those are poor scholars. These are the guys who don't like Titus Andronicus because they haven't read or don't like Seneca. And and it's that kind of of approach that I think is so dominant, certainly in the English-speaking theater, that someone that was just a pure theater audience they would draw you towards that. And so you'd find yourself doing, you know, versions of, um, uh, you know, maybe you'd do the Revengers tragedy and there would be blood on stage and everyone would be like, oh, goodness. But um, uh, if Wildclaw does the Revengers tragedy, then there's, by God, going to be horror on stage the way that uh, uh, Webster or Ford intended it. I forget who wrote it, but one of those guys. And so how does the experience of seeing this uh, put on its legs, as we uh, theater folks say, put on stage, <laughs> how does that change your understanding of the original story or how does it change the dynamic of the story? Well, I think any kind of engagement with someone else who's a powerful creative force. And in this case, I'm not just engaging with the, with the uh, script or the, with the playwright, uh, Scott Barsati, but with the, our director, Shade Murray, who brings his own concerns in as directors do. And so now it's sort of like a three way discussion of this, of this story between myself and Scott and Shade, and I am basically, you know, to some degree I'm constrained to be on Lovecraft's side, even on places where I, you know, I would rather not be on Lovecraft's side, but it's it's my job to say, well, this is the, you know, possibly um, uh, Marxist interpretation of the play. Love, this, is a play uh, this is a story that Lovecraft wrote right after basically becoming a, uh, a technocratic socialist politically. There may be something about a creepy aristocracy um, uh, that runs the only gold refinery in town that might have some impact on the on, on Lovecraft's thinking, or obviously the racial component. To what extent are the Deep Ones representative of Portuguese and Cape Verdean immigrants of the sort that Lovecraft saw coming into the seaports of um, uh, New England and re and recoiled against? And to what extent is that horror of others part of Lovecraft's xenophobia as opposed to? a universal horror of others that is uh, approachable. And those are the kinds of questions that obviously get asked anytime you look at Shadow of Rinsmith. And it's, I think, I think it's really interesting in the same way that it is when you and I take a, 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 a cinematic a drama component or whatever and try and move it into the framework of role-playing games. I think it's interesting when I look at two people who have two different arts, right? Directing and playwriting are different arts. And they come at it uh, as against short story writing, or even in my case, you know, the the closet drama that is role playing games, and I, I think that's it. Just gives me a really 
I mean, anytime you look at someone who's who's a good artist looking at a at, at another piece of art, you learn more about that art, and that would be true whether it was Scott and Shade and I sitting around talking about Guernica or Scott and Shade and I trying to put together Shadow over Innsmouth. I think that that would, would just be the case. So, what percentage of the questions posed to you are ones that you're just able to pull from your existing reservoir of knowledge, and which ones are things that you actually had to hit the books for? Well, I had to hit the books for some of the specific things, like um, the microfilm stuff. I did not immediately know uh, when microfilm would have been in common use, and would there have been microfilm at uh, Miskatonic Library or at uh, the Newburyport Historical Society? And I could come back and say, no, definitely not. Uh, I did a little more research on the spread of Dutch elm disease than I thought I was going to, but Scott and I both agreed that it would be interesting because Dutch elm disease begins in Ohio, if, you know, because Olmsted is spiritually dead in Ohio and is coming back to life in Massachusetts, is it possible that you can still have elms in Massachusetts that are immune to Dutch elm disease? And of course, it turns out that the pattern of spread does go to the east. And so the Innsmouth elms are still healthy and that that is a is, is a nice piece of, of work that I had to research. But a lot of the stuff is like they say, what did uh, Obed Marsh want with the Deep Ones? Or what did the Deep Ones want with the people? And that's the sort of thing that I've been professionally thinking about for 20 years and can answer that, you know, uh, right off the top of my head. There've been, it, one of the other great things was working with the dialect coach on all the Lovecraftian chants. <laughs> I did actually have to research how Lovecraft meant ia to be uh, pronounced. And much as uh, much to my chagrin, I've been pronouncing it ia the whole time. But Lovecraft probably meant it ia in the um uh in in the fashion that he has sort of like a brain yeah exactly like uh like uh, the the spawn of Yogg-Sothoth Wilbur's brother when he's screaming up on the hill uh they uh phonetically spell out what he says and it looks like ia and and that that is probably ia ia uh in Lovecraft's parody of the crucifixion there but the um but yeah the ia turns out it's it's uh something Lovecraft did invent or at least I couldn't find anything before him and so finding out how Lovecraft meant it to be pronounced was a bigger job than just telling people how to say Cthulhu Phtan, right? Which I've been doing forever. And there's an interesting parallel, I think, between gaming and theater in the example you give of Dutch elm disease, because presumably this isn't written into the script that there's a big monologue about the spread of Dutch elm disease, <laughs> no, right? Right. Um, but it becomes a secret, a uh, source of knowledge for the actors in particular when they're playing it, that they know more than they are showing, mm -hmm. that they have secrets, they have a depth of knowledge. And even if that just translates as a sort of a confidence uh, that can get you through the terrifying experience of acting on stage, that uh, it's like having a chunk of backstory that you've written about your player character that you may not necessarily reveal or the GM knowing a lot about the setting and how the economics of the wheel making industry in this particular town work, where just the fact that you know that, and it may never come into play, but it gives you a sense of confidence and a sense of richness of the world. And you're able to project that even if you don't introduce a particular fact about the wheel making industry. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The, 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 that sort of background and, and area knowledge, it, it turns out that the, uh, the company, the, the 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 players who are old wild claw hands are at least familiar enough with Lovecraft to know the kinds of questions that they're asking. And people like the dialect guy who came in cold and knew none of this, or some of the other actors who, who are not Lovecraft fans um, or had never read Lovecraft before, 
and it was very much like explaining a, a, a role-playing game setting to people who have who are eager to learn but don't have the first idea of what the questions are they should be asking. And so we spent what, in retrospect, seemed like an odd amount of time just me explaining the prehistory of the world in the Cthulhu mythos because they wanted to know how the Shoggoths fit in and which one was Dagon and where's Cthulhu and, and all of these sorts of questions that none of them are in the play per se. I mean, there's certainly no lecture about uh, Lovecraftian geological prehistory, but it's all backstory that the, that the play, that the players really seem to want to, to have a handle on. And that as I'm explaining it, the director is coming in and saying, Oh, this is how we can use this. And, and so I can provide this data dump. And then the director puts it into the context that the actors can use. And it was a, an interesting collaboration and other stuff that I did uh, in that first data dump, Scott then put into second draft of the play. So there, were, there was a, a sort of enriching quality to it, both on the on the stage and sort of behind the stage in the actors' minds. I hope. Uh, well, no one wants to be left out of the Shoggoth jokes. No, you, you'd you'd hate that. Um, although being left out of the Shoggoth actually a bonus. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, and speaking of theatrical tradition, I see a hook coming from stage left to pull us from this stage and into our next hut. Okay, I should, as we are um, uh, following the spotlight out, I should mention that uh, Shadow of Rinsmith uh, debuts December 13th at the Athenaeum Theater in Chicago and plays through January 26th. Um, so everybody in the Chicago area, uh, head on out to that, and everybody not in the Chicago area, hop on a plane. It's winter in Chicago. That's right. What, what could be more exciting? <laughs> than to go indoors and watch theater. That's okay, what we're doing. <laughs> that is the end of this Money Hat segment. many of us would enter any hut that Robin led us to on those grounds alone. It is the overwhelming and beautiful smell of roasting turkey, cooking stuffing, bubbling mashed potatoes, delicious gravy, and all the trimmings that have drawn us through the door of this Christmas edition of the Food Hut. Robin, what is Christmas food in your happy land of Canada? Do you just enjoy a peppermint donut and toast each other? with a, um, uh, a pumpkin-spiced Molson, or is there more to Christmas in Canada that we are, that we are not perceiving? Um, I don't think that Christmas in Canada is different. Uh, for example, all of the things that you just listed as the prime constituents of the Christmas dinner are uh, part of uh, the two Christmas dinners that Valerie and I eat on Christmas Day. <laughs> uh, we have uh, one at noontime uh, with her folks, and then... Uh, uh, hitch a ride uh, north to the small city that I grew up in and have another one in the late afternoon. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, there's there's a certain amount of pacing oneself, and it's become yeah. more challenging over the years. Forget moving Thanksgiving. You should uh, 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 you should be uh, lobbying Time Incorporated to get two Christmases. I think also the uh, some sort of uh, commercial syndicate, as Charlie <laughs> Brown would say, would have a big interest in that. But I think what's really specific about Christmas food is the idea of food that you eat with your family that, that creates sort of a sense of time. And very often, of course, because the whole point of the festival in the uh, mythic, if not the religious sense, 
is to hunker down for the winter and uh, celebrate the fact that the uh, solstice is turning around and to uh, silk in one's pelt with a vast cornucopia of food that you really shouldn't eat 12 months of the year. <laughs> Says you. And also it's something that, you know, on sort of a sober note, marks the passage of time in your family because mm -hmm. the things that you grow up with that are made for you uh, by your uh, grandparents in particular or even your parents uh, then go away when you lose those people. And the question then becomes whether you continue that tradition as a way of remembering them and still being able to eat that food again, uh, that the food that tastes like Christmas. So, for example... Uh, when my grandmother Hanford passed away, I guess about a decade ago now, uh, it fell to me, i.e. I stepped up and volunteered to make sure that at my mom's house that we had the Christmas pudding the way Grandma Hanford used to make it. And uh, she turns out to have been very usefully diligent about keeping records of recipes of the things that she cooked. And so there was a folder full of recipes for Christmas pudding and Christmas cake. The only difference being that it was not always clear which was which. Right. <laughs> which one was pudding or which one was cake or... Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, good, good for Grandma Hannaford, I guess. That, that, that's, that, signs that, that shows that she knows the importance of moisture in cake. Yes. So uh, speaking of the tyranny of small differences, it was very important to make sure that you we picked the right one. But the other remarkable thing that we found and really gave me an insight into her was that she wrote down her recipe every time she made it, and she made it slightly differently every time. Ah! So uh, there was no such thing as Grandma Hanford's classic Christmas pudding, although it tasted the same every single time, and it tasted like continuity, it was subtly different every time <laughs> in a way that was imperceptible to the delighted eater, um, in part because this is incredibly uh, rich and, you know, it's a real punch of sugar upside the head. Um, and it's your basic sort of cakey Christmas pudding with uh, glacé fruit, and they're soaked in uh, brandy, which is the only reason there would be brandy in my grandma Hanover's kitchen mm -hmm. and some of the versions of it had suet in them uh others had <laughs> shortening uh guess guess which one i went for well as as a um uh, as an innovator i'm sure that you went with shortening instead of uh sticking uh sticking with good old suet that never did anyone any harm and so this was something that i you know now make and it took me a couple what the uh, difficult part was learning how to uh, sort of steam it in the oven as it cooked and mm -hmm. to make sure that it had the, the right moisture. And I'm still probably not producing a pudding of the texture and consistency that would allow one to gift it as opposed to the consistency that allows you to uh, take it home and then immediately eat it. So it might not meet Grandma Hannaford's full specifications because she used to make tons of them and give them away. But it continues to be uh, Christmas for certainly for me and for uh, our family. And there's two types of uh, sauce that you put on it. There's either the fluffy white sauce, which is the uh, way I feel it should be done. I feel the white sauce should be cold, but you can also serve it hot. And then there's a caramel sauce for uh, them that want that. And uh, so that's uh, you know, a real example of the taste of Christmas also being a taste that brings home to you your feelings of uh, family. So, Ken, is there a uh, specifically Haitian element to your Christmas eating? In part of our uh, brotherhood that transcends nationality and technical genetics, uh, my sort of strongest family Christmas uh, thing is also a dessert, a Christmas dessert. It is my mom's fruitcake. And 
for years and years and years, I grew up hearing other people make fruitcake jokes and not getting them because fruitcake was crazy and delicious, and you only got it <laughs> at Christmas time, and you had to basically fight your dad for it. You you didn't just have some amount of fruitcake that was yours by right. It was about staying up later than dad so you could eat fruitcake. And, you know, or getting up earlier, but that was not going to happen. So Whenever I hear a fruitcake joke, it's, oh, you poor benighted soul. Yes, it, you it, clearly it, haven't had the right fruitcake. Yeah, it, it, it's just unimaginable. It's like maybe if Marie Curie kept hearing Pollock jokes... That's that same sort of reaction, <laughs> right? It's like, but I'm a transcendent genius. What is wrong with you people? Everyone I know is really smart. I work in a science lab. And and maybe that's the, the version, but my mom's fruitcake is the freaking Marie Curie of fruitcakes. It is phenomenal. Uh, not in the sense that it's radioactive. Well, it might be. I don't care. It, it tastes that good. <laughs> it could actually be made with polonium as far as I know. And um, for years and years and years, uh, my mom would make it uh, when we were kids and then when I was a teenager and then when I was in college. And then she would send it as my sort of Christmas care package when I moved to Chicago. And then I, it took, I don't know how many tries, but I managed to wrest the recipe from her so that Sheila could make this fruitcake for me at home. Because as opposed to you, who travels quite honorably and delightfully back to your ancestral man, very Lovecraftian, uh, for your Christmases. I made the decision that traveling on Christmas is possibly the worst thing that you can do on Christmas. And since I live in the destination, I have an open invitation to my mom to come visit me any Christmas she feels like it. She usually goes to where the grandkids are, obviously. But um, I don't go anywhere. Sheila and I stay home and make our, our sort of our own little Christmas food traditions and other traditions. But among those is definitely my mom's street cake, which is great. Um, you, to do it right, you have to start making it around, you know, Halloween or mid-October because it, it gets a lot of rum poured into it over the, ah, over the yes. I, I know the ways of those fruitcakes. Yes. And it is so good. It is just crazily good. And uh, there is one in my refrigerator right now that I don't get until Christmas because it is still in its rum inhaling stage. The Christmas treat that I'm always very anxious to make sure that I get my share of at my wife's family's place is the barking cracker. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, are you familiar with this? Why on earth would I be familiar with the barking cracker? That sounds like something that is not just Canadian, but perhaps Upper Manitoban or something. Um, uh, and again, it's it's the uh, one could use some dramaturgy on why it is called the barking cracker, <laughs> uh, except that you bark in delight when you eat it. Yeah. Uh, well, it's, it's sort of it's a cross between bark and a cracker. Actually, it's not that mysterious. Although etymology being what it is, it may be named after Emily Barking, who invented it. Um, but there's a uh, layer of dark chocolate. Okay. I'm uh, with you. There is a layer of uh, melted brown sugar and butter, i.e. caramel. Caramel. And there are soda crackers. All right. And they uh, <laughs> melt together and uh, form a, a delicious, delightful combination. Now, is the that, soda uh, crackers, are they munged up into crumbs so that it's all one indistinguishable, uh, delicious mass? Or is it yes. like they're in layers like a s'more? Um, actually, I think it's s'morey. It, it is. I would say it's it's more s'morey. Hmm. And so, uh, uh, Valerie actually, when I'm away at Dragon Meat, goes up to uh, her dad's place and, with various other family members, whips up a whole ton of cookies. Mm -hmm. But it's important to make sure that certain cookies are squirreled back home, or they will not still be there on Christmas Day. Right. So I always uh, send her multiple calendar reminders to uh, provide me with uh, barking cookies. Barking cookies. And and so the soda cracker, and obviously anything that, that Valerie is involved with, I, I, will, um, uh, I will immediately accept on your word. 
but it seems to me that there are things besides soda crackers that one could put underneath it that would also actually be tasty in and of themselves. Is this like the notion uh, you're where you're imposing mere logic on a miracle of chemistry? Yeah, uh, yeah. the sort of the little bit of uh, savoriness of the salt mm -hmm. uh, gives you your uh, down home version of the. Uh, sea salt uh, caramel chocolate thing. Right. And, yeah. uh, no, the salt is really not the part I'm questioning. It, there's something actually really delightful about the, the texture. Um, uh, do you have premium plus crackers in, in America? We have premium. I don't know how plus they are. I, I don't usually buy soda crackers because I, until now, had no technological use for them. Um, soda crackers actually crushed up our another ingredient of the Christmas pudding. So this uh, suggests a... Uh, what uh, one food writer calls caker cooking, mm -hmm. the uh, sort of down-home, rural, I think Canadian or maybe Canadian and North American in general uh, style of cooking. But those, uh, you know, these are obviously uh, recipes that do not come from uh, Jamie Oliver or poor Nigella Lawson. <laughs> um, is there another uh, uh, food that you associate with uh, with Christmas on more of a snacking basis? On a snacking basis, there are Sheila's Christmas cookies, which are the best Christmas cookies, I don't say ever, because obviously someone could come along and make better ones. It's not impossible. But, but they're best for you. They're, they're the best for me, and I think that they're the best imaginable. Um, they are uh, white chocolate cranberry chip cookies. So you make uh, your chocolate chip cookies, just as you would normally, however you would, and you use white chocolate and cranberries, little uh, craisins. And the cranberries take away everything that is wrong with a white chocolate chip cookie and replace it with the magic of cranberry. And so you have <laughs> a savory delight with the cranberries, because they're not super sweet, and you don't have to fight with the flavor of real chocolate. So the cranberry still is the flavor, but it's not like just eating cranberries, which, as everyone knows, becomes miserable well before you run out of cranberries. And so there's some sort of, again, an alchemical blend that is created that, that is, you know, just, it's unsurpassable. And, and sometimes I will buy the blueberry-flavored cranberries to try and get her to make these cookies when it's not Christmas, but that doesn't work very often. <laughs> um, Christmas cookies are uh, big at our place as well, and this is a, another family tradition coming from my side of the family. When I was a kid, uh, my mom would roll out the dough for sugar cookies, and my uh, brother and I would ice them in various colors of icing colored with food coloring, and uh, use your cookie cutters, and uh, those are also very much the taste of the run-up to Christmas for me. And uh, it's the topic of Christmas and eating could go on forever. Uh, this will be our penultimate episode before Christmas, but the last episode we plan to drop is our live episode uh, from Dragon Meat, so... Consider yourself wished uh, happy holidays for the uh, for the first time. We'll be taking a little uh, break for the holidays and then be back with more podcasts in 2014. Uh, but before we do that, there's another segment to get to. And what segment might that be? Well, we hear the whir of chronotons and the clanking of time gear, so that means it's time to step into or around Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated uses to send him back into history to alter, spindle, and sometimes mutilate it. And here uh, we've had... Uh, I try to space out the atrocities <laughs> in, in Ken's time machine. Unlike actual history. <laughs> yes. Um, but... Uh, 
I thought we'd get to uh, another serious one, uh, not because it reflects the festive season, but because uh, it's in the news. Iran is in the process of negotiating a possible nuclear settlement with the world powers, and that brings up the question of will that actually effectively uh, remove their nuclear capability better than either the status quo or a catastrophic war would, and who exactly in Iran wants to thaw out and become like uh, Russia and China, if not Norway, and who in uh, Iran is just going to play a uh, waiting game and hope for the uh, possible thaw forces to falter. But uh, this whole problem goes back way further in time, uh, perhaps to the Iranian Revolution of 1979, and perhaps even further than that. So Ken, if you were tasked the job of unraveling this problem through time travel, uh, what uh, possible solutions would you propose? Well, um, I think everyone can agree on two basic facts here. And the first is that the Shah was god-awful. And second, that the Iranian Revolution very rapidly turned also god-awful. And that there is not really a good guy side to uh, strengthen in this. If you want to simply short-circuit the 1979 revolution, probably the easiest way, and I'm not saying it's very easy because the Shah was, you know, uh, running a torture regime. He was in cahoots with the uh, hated Americans and British. Uh, Virtually everyone in the country hated or feared him. Uh, And the only question was, to what extent could the opposition leverage that to drive him from power? At, At what point can they remove the morale of the army, which is his final support? And the one of the sort of critical things in restarting the protests after um, uh, the, the the first batch of repression had, had knocked them down in 79 was something uh, called the Cinemarex Fire in Abadan, Iran. And uh, four arsonists chained shut the door of the Cinemarex and uh, set it on fire and killed 422 people. And at the time, uh, everyone blamed uh, the Shah for doing it to make uh, the uh, revolutionaries, the Khomeini's forces, look bad because obviously one of the things that they were protesting was movie theaters because they spread uh, anti-Western propaganda and uh, beliefs and you know skirts and things like that. Well, they they spread Western they propaganda. They spread Western propaganda exactly. They they spread all manner of of um, uh, of bad news from the uh, from Khomeini's perspective, and at the time everyone believed that the Shah had done it. And finally, at the end of, and certainly the Khomeini said, no, no, the Shah did it. And finally, after the revolution, they put one police officer of the Shah's old police on trial for it and convicted him, which made the guy who actually set the fire so mad that he came out and said, how dare he take credit for my awesome arson? (sighs) And that was a big scandal. But by then, of course, the uh, Khomeinists were in the, in booted and saddled and could just execute everyone who talked about it. And that sort of became a non thing. But if, you can provide absolute documentation, you know, film, photographs, whatever, of the Shah of the of Khomeini's people setting that fire. You have a possibility to sort of short circuit that revolution uh, in '79, and maybe the Shah gets to keep power. Now, given that the Shah is a terrible human being who is running a torture regime, I don't consider that an optimal solution because it keeps the Shah in power, which seems like a terrible terrible way to be and sure he's going to die of cancer in the next year or two or whatever but that's that, that that's not um as much fun so another way that you can uh, do this is uh the shah 
was going to be assassinated by Khrushchev. He hated the Shah because the Shah was pro-Western. And so he ordered uh, the KGB to go in and um, blow up the Shah in a Volkswagen Beetle, of all things, which I wouldn't have thought the Shah would have been caught, well, literally caught dead in. And it turned out that he was alive in it because the detonator didn't work. And so the KGB guy pushes the button down, the detonator doesn't fire, the Shah is unblown up in 1959 and proceeds to become more and more the Shah of Iran that we all uh, boo and hiss and don't like. And so if you simply you know, replace that guy's detonator with a working detonator, you blow up the Shah in 1959. Which I think is a first instance of you of fixing a KGB assassination so that it works. Yes. Uh, if one would like to keep uh, the Shah's white revolution, which was the land reform, votes for women... Um, all of the uh, sort of progressive Western stuff that the Shah did in 1963 and 64, which, of course, was very much part of why uh, Khomeini hated him so much. Um, and you want to keep that around and then have it sanctified by martyrdom. What you need to do is fix the 1965 assassination attempt of the Shah. A soldier got mad at the Shah for whatever reason and stormed into the palace and started shooting his way through the palace looking for the Shah and eventually was taken down by the Shah's bodyguards. And so what one does then is one provides that soldier with a to-the-minute map of where the Shah is and maybe you take him to the right doorway so that when he goes through, he only has to, you know, shoot his way through one guard before he can get to the Shah. And if you can assassinate the Shah in 65, he becomes a martyr to the white revolution. And much as uh, the martyred John Kennedy allowed uh, LBJ to turn around public opinion on all the, uh, d the democratic uh, social uh, reforms and agendas, you'd have the same sort of effect perhaps in Iran, where Iranian society is like, oh, our Shah was gunned down by reactionaries right as he attempted to uh, you know, liberate women and, and do something nice for the peasantry, uh, which in fact, you know, the, the white revolution was. And, and so you can maybe short-circuit the revolution by having the Shah's final monument be progressive westernizing legislation as opposed to a whole series of torture prisons. Um, so that's another possibility, and I'm, I'm not sure which one you want to go to. I think a lot of it depends on whether or not we believe that the White Revolution was one of those things like, uh, say, the Decemberist Revolution in Russia, a good idea a hundred years too early, or whether it had a real possibility to, to, to lay down seeds and create a, um, uh, a, uh, a, a more Western uh, mindset in the broader mass of Iranians. It seemed, it passed a referendum like five million to four million, but obviously a referendum under the Shah is not going to be uh, what one might call transparent, so there's no real way of knowing how popular or unpopular it was, but certainly killing the Shah might have uh, made it more popular and thus re removed some of the uh, some of the urge at least to bring in Khomeini as opposed to replace uh, the, his heir with a, a proper constitutional monarchy. Right, because even now, under the layer of um, repressive murderous theocrats, there's a general population of people who are very culturally pro-Western. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's certainly fertile ground uh, to give those people a, a leg up in this alternate history. And in, and in fairness, um, it used to be true, and it may still be true, that the turnover rate in the Iranian Majlis in the parliament, their elections, uh, was better than in the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, that the, 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 their sort of local democracy, not that their Majlis has a ton of power, but that their local democracy is at least as robust as a democracy in the West is. And so, you know, giving more strength to those kind of forces is not outside the realm of possibility and is certainly sort of the direction you want to go. But one of the problems 
that the uh, generally, as you point out, pro-Western in attitude and positive, uh, you know, bourgeois-minded uh, Iranian population has is the uh, long history of British and American uh, screwing around with Iran, which began as purely British screwing around with Iran, and then in 1953, for reasons known only to President, I President Eisenhower, he reversed Truman's policy and helped the British overthrow the Prime Minister of Iran, Mohammad Mossadegh, and that was in 1953. So, you have uh, a really great opportunity for us to come in and say, oh, the British were terrible. If only you had the Americans who hate the British because we overthrew them. And the uh, Iranian population, certainly in 1953, not particularly uh, politically uh, sophisticated enough to recognize that that is a simplification, but might have been amenable to some sort of, you know, I, I think worst case scenario, Masadic becomes a Tito in Iran. And I think best case scenario, he becomes the first of a number of sort of uh, centrist governments in Iran that, that move Iran out of autocracy and towards a sort of more broad-based, uh, if not, you know, ideal democracy, but maybe something more like um, uh, Malaysia or, um, or uh, Uganda is now a, uh, a country with obviously some, some bumps on the road, but that is still generally pro-Western and is generally um, amenable uh, to using its power for good in the area. So, uh, how much does Ike like vodka? Well, getting Ike drunk is not in my power, but I have an even better idea. In 1958, uh, Bernard Law Montgomery publishes his memoirs in which he criticizes Eisenhower and says that Eisenhower's incompetence prolonged the war by a year, which is a lot of talk coming from the guy who planned Arnhem. But anyway, so this is what finally ends Eisenhower and Montgomery's friendship. Obviously, dealing with Montgomery would have ended the, the friendship early, you would think, but this is the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back. And in 1951, Montgomery comes to Canada to open the Montgomery School in Hamilton, Ontario, and is Bernard Montgomery all over the place. And my alternate is not necessarily getting Ike drunk, but getting someone involved in the Adlai Stevenson for President campaign drunk enough to think, what a great idea if we have Bernard Montgomery come over to America and do a lecture tour in which he explains to everyone how Eisenhower didn't win the war. And that is the sort of idiocy that anyone who's going to think nominating Adlai Stevenson is a good idea is going to fall in with whether I get them drunk or not. <laughs> and so having Montgomery going around giving a series of lectures on how it was really the British that won the war and Eisenhower just screwed everything up. First of all, it gets Eisenhower an even bigger landslide victory in 52, which is great. And second of all, ideally, when uh, Alan Dulles comes to Eisenhower and says, hey, let's help the British overthrow the democratically elected government of Iran... Eisenhower says, you know what? Let's not do that. Let's never do that. Let's never do the British another favor as long as I'm president. And I think that since by 1956, he was already, uh, you know, throttling the British back on their choke chain at Suez, simply moving that decision point three years early doesn't, doesn't change anything really in, in, I think, Eisenhower's instincts and policies. And we just sort of get that out in the open and get it early enough to save uh, Mossadegh and save the possibility of Iranian democracy in the 1950s. And I think... Any of those change points, depending on exactly what sort of outcome you want, this might be one of those uh, multivariant uh, possibilities. The final possibility, and is one that I'm probably going to do regardless, <laughs> is um, uh, when Khomeini was exiled the first time, 
he uh, went to Turkey and he went to Italy and he went a couple of other places and he wound up in Najaf in Iraq. And he was in Iraq from 1965 to 1978 when Saddam Hussein threw him out. Now, uh, reading up on his Robespierre. Part of the reason that Saddam Hussein threw Khomeini out is that Khomeini was conspiring with Shiites in Iraq to, you know, overthrow the Ba'athist regime. But in the larger sense of we're going to have a giant Shiite caliphate and it's going to be awesome, as opposed to specifically, let's go strangle Saddam Hussein in his bed. Speaking of stories without good guys. <laughs> yes. In our, in, our length, in our lengthy series of uh, stories without good guys set in or around the Middle East. Um, so if you simply provide Saddam with evidence that Khomeini has moved from general, wouldn't it be nice if we all had a Shiite caliphate with me as the caliph, to let's immediately overthrow Saddam. I think Saddam in that run-up to when he seizes control of the Ba'ath Party in 1979 is going to have, he's going to want a, a common enemy to focus people behind him, and this uh, Iranian agitator is an ideal sort. So if I can get Saddam Hussein paranoid enough to kill Khomeini, then regardless of what happens in the 79 revolution, we at least get to roll the dice on a different uh, 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 theocrat taking over. And, you know, well, there's a rich bed of paranoia to work from. <laughs> exactly. And, and again, it's, you know, much like getting um, uh, the Irish generals drunk, um, getting uh, Saddam paranoid is not exactly the most difficult thing I've ever been called on to do by Time Incorporated. So I think that if you sort of belt and suspenders it, you make sure that Khomeini is dead in Iraq in 76 uh, or 77, and then you also either uh, preserve Mossadegh or you uh, kill the Shah, or you kill the Shah, I, I think you have a, a real a real strong possibility that you, you wind up with a generally democratic constitutional monarchy, maybe on the model of Thailand, although Thailand has obviously got its own problems right now. If you look back over the last 50 years, Thailand is how you run a monarchy from total autocracy up to the present day without having too many god-awful problems um, uh, in the meantime. Um, and so what is the uh, sort of best case uh, present day in the Middle East when you execute uh, this plan? I think the best case present day in the Middle East is that um, a democratic Iran is attacked by Saddam Hussein in an attempt to consolidate his own power, just like um, uh, it happened in the actual Iran-Iraq war. Um, he moves in, the United States, uh, he moves in with Soviet backing, the United States provides uh, backing to the democratic Iranian government, which defeats Saddam. He is overthrown by his own soldiers and executed, you know, hung up on a meat hook and beaten by his own people the way that he should be. And uh, Iraq then becomes a either pro-Western military uh, regime along the lines of Egypt, which would be sort of the ideal uh, or probably the most likely situation. But the ideal situation is that the presence of a large Shia democracy next door for 40 years has caused the Shia majority of Iraq to think we could have a large Shia uh, democracy of our very own, if only. And then you would perhaps have a independent Kurdistan in the north and you'd have a Shia democracy in the south of Iraq and things would by now be so uh, so positive that people would be wondering whether or not... Um, uh, our uh, democratic uh, allies in Iran are about to become, you know, one of the newly industrializing tigers, uh, and how they're going, how their uh, uh, flourishing stock market is going to handle 
the uh, sudden drop in oil prices as opposed to wondering whether or not they're going to be detonating A-bombs on Jerusalem. And uh, speaking of that, does this uh, bank shot you into a way to unwind the occupation? Does this uh, reduction of the available store of enemies uh, make it easier to unwind that problem? Um, which occupation are we talking about? There are uh, so the many. Israeli occupation. Oh, the, of, uh, the, the, well, the, is, the Israeli occupation dates from 1967 and 73. And so those came about when Iran was already pro-Western. Iran, if anything, uh, had, you know, either had no effect or had a moderately calming effect on the Arab forces intending to invade Israel. So unwinding that from an Iran perspective is not going to be very easy just because the timing isn't going to create an other, a, a, a strategic opening into the Arab world the way that uh, Sadat did in the 80s and the way that uh, King Hussein in Jordan did after uh, Sadat opened the door. And so even if you get Iraq overthrown and turned democratic, say in the 50s or 60s, um, you don't necessarily wind up with a strategic uh, loosening of the, of the noose around Israel uh, soon enough to make Israel not respond by occupying uh, the West Bank and Sinai. Um, I, I think that unwinding that involves going back to a whole batch of different problems, possibly involving um, uh, getting God to clarify exactly who gets which part <laughs> of the promised land and making sure that everyone gets a copy of the memo. That that might well, be one I'm of those sure things. I'm sure he likes vodka. Having to get, oh, of course God likes vodka. He wouldn't have invented it if he hadn't. <laughs> it just stands to reason. Uh, well, I... Uh... Even if it doesn't bank shot away every problem, I uh, like the uh, look of this alternate reality, and so does Time Incorporated. So they're going to uh, send you off in your time machine, and that's going to conclude uh, yet another installment of our podcast. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep the show going. Fill our stockings, by which we mean the donate button, at KennyRobinTalkAboutStuff.com. Join such illustrious patrons as James Torrance. Andrew Miller. Robert Hansen. And Dan Bidwa. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.